What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we can answer that question for you right here and right now. EWTN, as you probably know, we stand with the Church. So if the Church says it, you're going to hear about it right here on EWTN. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email, especially those of you watching on TV today. Our address for that is ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Ace McKay is handling social media today. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, uh, we are streaming both of those platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box, if you would, please. Ace will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can answer that question on today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with... Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Interesting question here from George, who says, Catholicism and Christianity as a whole just borrow bits and pieces from different world religions to make itself appear valid. For example, Christmas and Easter are rooted in pagan rituals. Also, the Greek god Dionysius could turn water into wine, just like Jesus did. Stuff like this shows how the Catholic Church is just a logical outgrowth of other religions that it borrows from but has no solid foundation of its own to stand on. Any thoughts there? Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the compliment. So, you know, it has always been the Catholic position that that the Catholic Church, uh, if you will, borrows from other religious traditions but sees that not as uh, some sort of uh, indictment of Catholicism, but it's real genius. So uh, St. Augustine of Hippo was one of many church fathers who wrote explicitly about this in his book on Christian Doctrine, book 2, chapter 40, actually, if you want to go look it up, where he, he talks about um, the points of commonality between Catholicism and specifically Greek philosophy, and, uh, and says, uh, gung-ho, let's do it, absolutely. And he, he uses the analogy of the, of the Israelites when they were driven, when they, when they uh, left Egypt during the Exodus, how they plundered the Egyptians and, and took the gold and silver of the Egyptians. He says, that's what we're doing. We are, <laughs> we are plundering the Egyptians, and we're taking uh, the truth, goodness, and beauty that we find in other traditions and making it our own and putting it to the service of the gospel. Mm. All right. Moreover, the idea <clears throat> that there is you know, more than a just sort of haphazard ad hoc blundering of the Egyptians, but that there might be some kind of real affinity between Christianity and other religious traditions, again, that was something that was embraced by the Church Fathers. Mm. Um, uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, when he was—he's a second-century Church Father, when he was speculating about why the Incarnation took place when it did. I mean, God could have become incarnate at any point in human history. Why then? Why at that time? And for Irenaeus, it was because it was necessary that civilization undergo a certain kind of cultural evolution, 
uh, to become prepared for the Incarnation. He called it being habituated to the divine Logos. Now, as you know, the Gospel of John refers to Christ as the Logos, the incarnate Word of God, mm. but the idea Logos itself is another idea barred from, from Greek philosophy and Stoicism in particular. It's the idea of there being a rational principle that undergirds the universe. And it is true. You can look at the cultural evolution of the human race and uh, in what Carl Jasper has called the Axial Age, so from about the 8th century B.C. forward, you see a major shift, not just in Palestine, but around the world in many of the great civilizations, whether it's uh, Jewish or, or, or Hellenistic, um, uh, Indian or Chinese, away from what would have characterized tribal religion or the temple religions of the Bronze Age to a form of religious practice that was more interior, more universalizable, more concerned with the ethical life. And, uh, and it's in that context that you begin to see principles like the Golden Rule enunciated, uh, and that uh, and and again, this is something from a Catholic point of view that as as humanity becomes more rationally self-aware, the truths of the natural law will impress themselves upon the consciousness. So the fact that Christianity or Catholicism specifically shows this affinity to other traditions doesn't undermine Catholic claims. It vindicates them. It validates them, because that's precisely what the Catholic Church says would be the case. So then what, what then is the value of Catholicism specifically if there are these, these insights into universal moral norms in other traditions? Well, C.S. Lewis, who was not a Catholic, but he had, um, you know, he, he would like to have been if he hadn't been prejudiced by his Northern Irish upbringing, um, uh, and was deeply read in Catholic theology, once said that, that Christianity writes with capital letters what nature wrote with cribbed hand. Uh, the book of Hebrews speaks about God's revelation coming in kind of fits and starts and shadowy hints in other traditions and other times, now being made most plainly manifest in the person of Jesus. And, and I'll give you an example of how that would spell out. So we, we've talked about, say, principles of the natural law and human dignity and conscience, mm -hmm. But that never led whole civilizations to the realization that, say, something like slavery was wrong or that we might have a moral obligation to tend to the poor. So the most rational of the Greeks, Aristotle, um, was, uh, was an irreducibly an elitist in his view of social relations and thought, well, you know, if you're a slave, that probably means that you have a slavish nature and, you know, you're better off down there at the bottom of the heap wow. while I'm standing on top of you and contemplating the stars. <laughs> that, that disposition vanishes in Christianity. I'm not saying individual Christians don't have it, but I'm mm. saying, like, the, the value system is, is, uh, is overturned such that within Christianity we now find even an aesthetic glorifying the weak, the poor, the broken, the marginalized, uh, and that leads to a genuine transformation of civilization and institutions like hospitals and, and universal education and universal human rights and rational rules of jurisprudence. And all these things are direct outgrowths of the Christian doctrine of the dignity of the person. Now, could you have gotten there without Christianity? Don't know. That's not how civilization got there. I can just tell you that even the insights of, of the Greeks, uh, the uh, ancient Hindus, the Buddhists, or, or, or Confucianists, wise and benevolent as they may have been, didn't make it all the way to the understanding of the true dignity of the human person created in God's likeness and image and fully manifested through the Incarnation. George, thanks so much for your question. In a moment, we're going to get to uh, James in Pensacola. Also, Chris in Fort Worth, Texas. couple lines open for you as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Do stay with us. 
call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We're going to begin today with James in Pensacola, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hey there, James, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, sir. I would like to talk about uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, In the Bible, it talked about Meshach, Meshach, and... uh, in the upcoming war mm-hmm. in, uh, in the Middle East and, and what it could turn into. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, to my way of looking at it, the only relevance of Ezekiel 38 towards current events in the Middle East is that there are contemporary Christians who insist on interpreting the Middle East through that lens. And that, of course, can have a real policy impact on the world. You know, if there are ideologues that insist on approaching geopolitical conflict through a, through a prophetic biblical lens, that's going to constrain the, the range of options available to them to, to, to look for solutions. And, I, and I, so I think it's unhelpful. I think it's, in fact, quite destructive and that we need to approach geopolitics with a rational humanitarian ethic and, and not try to read it through the lens of, of biblical prophecy. And the reason I say that is, well, first of all, I think that, I mean, Ezekiel's horizon, his perspective is pretty pretty specifically located within uh, uh, the situation of exilic Israel, exilic Judah, uh, during the Babylonian period in, in, uh, you know, in, in antiquity. And so it's not immediately relevant to us, you know, in our geopolitics. It's a different geopolitical environment, and trying to apply that to our own day, I think, is a is a is a, a failed proposition but moreover uh, the history of 2000 years plus of biblical interpretation has shown that when people attempt to read geopolitics through the lens of biblical apocalyptic literature uh, they're always wrong they're always wrong people yeah. have been attempting for 2000 years to say well you know this this character in my contemporary experience must correspond to that figure in biblical prophecy and and of course he didn't. Well, for, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see those, those that kind of that kind of interpretation has always proven wrong. Mm. That doesn't give me a lot of confidence to hope that well, yeah, this time we got the right one. <laughs> you know, it's never worked. No. It's never worked. And uh, and historically, the Catholic Church hasn't read biblical prophecy in that way. So specifically, when you read Ezekiel. I mean, Ezekiel, uh, like many of the Old Testament prophets, is really looking forward to the coming kingdom of God. That's that's his horizon, and and of course, in in Ezekiel's visions, he he puts a lot of stock on the on the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, but not not any old you know run of the mill temple that you might pick up at Walmart. He's got a temple with a river that has miraculous fruit growing on the sides that brings healing. I mean, this is a you know this is not your grandpappy's temple. This yeah. is this is the, the eschatological stuff here. And, and, of course, when Christ showed up on the scene, he declared that the kingdom of God had come in his ministry, and yet he, he upended a lot of the expectations of his contemporaries about things like physical temples and, and the physical conquest of, say, Rome or imperialistic powers, and mm-hmm. said explicitly, my kingdom is not of this world, and, uh, you know, the kingdom of God is within you. And he, he made clear that th- that kind of prophetic expectation shouldn't be applied literally. And so the church in particular in somebody like St. Augustine, has interpreted that to mean that the Christian Church, that the, that the manifestation of Christ's presence in the world through his members, uh, is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, or at least its inauguration, uh, its culmination coming in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. And between now and then, 
the best we can say about biblical prophecy in the end of time is that we're closer now than we've ever been. True right? that. Which, again, that's going to be true whenever you say it. Better believe it. James, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's called to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Let's go now to Chris in Fort Worth, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Chris, what's on your mind today? Oh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I was wondering about uh, in what sense should we read the book of Genesis, and specifically the story about Adam and Eve, and also what sense should we read the book of Revelation? Sure. Thanks. I appreciate the question. So to begin with, um, there is no one definitive Catholic interpretation of any specific passage of the Bible. Maybe a few exceptions. I mean, I, I think you could probably say pretty clearly that John chapter 6, within a Catholic context, is always understood to refer to the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. But barring a few exceptional examples like that, there's no definitive biblical interpretation within Catholicism. I mean, people are allowed to have different points of view. Um, but there are some parameters. Here are some of the parameters. Um, first of all, the most important sense of the Bible is what the Catholic Church calls the spiritual sense. And that is reading the Bible for personal, spiritual, and moral transformation. Reading the Bible in such a way that it makes you to see the world as Jesus saw it, and to act in it as Jesus saw. St. Augustine wrote an entire book on this called On Christian Doctrine, and what he said was, look, however you read the Bible, you might come up with some pretty wacky stuff that, that might be factually wrong, but as long as it leads you to charity— is the effect in your life is virtue and charity, then uh, then we'll go along with it. You know that that's the ultimate criterion. Is does it does it pr promote virtue and charity? There are some other criterion that you have to bring to bear. One of them, uh, stated explicitly by Pope Benedict in his uh, post synodal apostolic exhortation, Verbum Domini, on the Word of God, the Word of the Lord, is that uh, Catholic interpretation necessarily rules out fundamentalism. What is fundamentalism? Fundamentalism is taking the text as the man on the street would understand it, uh, reading the propositions of Scripture strictly in their straightforward denotative sense, right? That's not the Catholic way of reading the Bible. That is the way Protestant fundamentalists read the Bible. It's not the way Catholics do. So, so whatever you do with the story of Adam and Eve, whatever you do with it, um, you cannot stop at the literal denotative sense of the text, you always read it with an eye to that spiritual sense, which is that union with Christ and personal transformation, mm -hmm. with an understanding that the, the, the value of the text, the meaning of the text to us, is something that, that radically transcends that, that literal sense. Now, um, my personal conviction, and it's one shared by the majority of Catholic theologians and interpreters, you're not, you're not obligated to hold this, but this is the way I take it, um, is that we should definitely not read Adam and Eve as a kind of straightforward uh, newspaper account of, you know, what happened on, uh, you know, A.D. 6004 on a Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock. You know, um, one, of the, one of the great ancient interpreters of the Bible, Origen of Alexandria, once said, hey, you know, you can't take Genesis perfectly literally because it says that God walked in the garden, and we know that God doesn't have feet, <laughs> right? So you just can't take it at that level. Sure. Uh, Pope John Paul II wrote an extended reflection on the first three chapters of Genesis uh, that came out as his Theology of the Body, 
and uh, and he says that you that explicitly this he makes origins point that you can't read Genesis as if it were concerned primarily with questions of theological prehistory. Um, you you read it with an eye to the question of the human person as a relationship to God and one another, and that's the way he read it, right? Yeah. With this, how, how can I read this to gain insight into, you know, who who what humanity is, what relationship with God looks like, what human brokenness and woundedness looks like, what what uh, what human affection and sexuality looks like? That's the way the Pope read it. Uh, that's the way we need to read it. And within that, yeah, there's a lot of leeway for differences of opinion. Chris, appreciate your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. We have a couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-3986. Mike is listening in Detroit on the great Ave Maria radio. Hello, Mike. What's on your mind today, sir? Oh, good, uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, so I have a Protestant friend who is convinced that the Earth is 6,000 years old, that everything was created in six days. Basically, man and dinosaurs coexisted. This seems to contradict with science. And uh, basically, I was looking for what's the Catholic understanding, and if it's different, why would he believe this? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So but the Catholic Church has a dogma. That's something that's a real sort of you know, top-line Catholic belief. Everybody's uh-huh. got to believe it if you're a Catholic. And it is that faith and reason are never in conflict. And if they appear to be in conflict, that you've made a mistake in one of your propositions. And it, 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 it's not necessary that the mistake has come on the side of reason. The mistake might be on the side of faith. Okay. Okay, and I'll give you an example historically. It's not about the age of the earth, but it's an interesting is- issue. You know, in, um, in the 16th century... Most of the educated population of, of Western Europe thought that Aristotle's cosmology was correct and that the sun went around the earth, right? And so beginning with what they took to be the scientific view, namely that the sun went around the earth, it was easy to read that into the Bible. And since the Bible says things like the sun rises and the sun sets, or mm-hmm. God calls the sun to stop in the sky when Joshua was battling, uh-huh. they said, well, that, that seems to confirm the Aristotelian picture of the world. Looks like Scripture backs up the idea that the sun goes around the earth. Then here comes Copernicus. He has a different model. It's, that's, uh, that's heliocentrism with the earth going around the sun. Mm-hmm. And Galileo comes along and really supports the, the Copernican view, and he also discovers things like mountains on the moon that suggest that maybe the, you know, the... Um, uh, you know, the astral spheres are, are not you know, unchangeable, perfect bodies and things. So this kind of begins to throw a monkey wrench in it. Uh, but he hadn't yet been able to prove Copernicus's theory. He, he brought some interesting points of view and some arguments, but it wasn't definitively proven. And uh, the Vatican's chief theological enforcer of the day was a man named Cardinal Robert Bellerman. And this is what Bellerman said to Galileo. He says, Galileo, you know, most of the scientists and the biblical scholars think you're wrong. But if you can give us empirical proof that your theory is more than a theory, mm-hmm. in that condition, then we will go back and we will rework our biblical exegesis. We'll review what we think the Bible says to bring it in line with what science reveals. Now, that disposition to say, I've gotten my religion wrong if it's disproven by science, and I will revise it accordingly, is very different from the Protestant fundamentalist view. What the Protestant fundamentalist does is he says, my interpretation of the Bible is definitive and final. 
And if science or empirical reason or human experience seems to contradict it, so much the worse for science, reason, and human experience. And so they will torture themselves with all kinds of unnatural contortions to try to preserve their ossified view of the Bible. And I'll, and, and I'll give you an example. Um, you talked about the age of the Earth or the age of the universe, which is, what is it, something like 13.7 billion years old. And mm -hmm. we, we can infer that from the redshift and the Hubble's discoveries and yep, yep. expansion of the universe and so forth. And, and um, what, the, what the fundamentalist does is he says, okay, so the empirical science seems to suggest an ancient Earth. That must mean that God created the world 6,000 years ago with the appearance of age. So they've, they, 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 they insert an ad hoc hypothesis that makes empirical science impossible. Because mm. em empirical science is grounded on the supposition that natural processes are continuous and that you can infer principles from them. And the, the fundamentalist just says, well, no, you can't trust empiricism because it's just an appearance. And, and you know, God could have made the world look this way, but, but the deep reality is unlike that. So it's a kind of Gnostic view that, you know, ultimate reality is completely beyond our ability to detect because it's subject simply to the whim of God who might make things appear one way but actually be another, rather like Neo in the Matrix. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, but it's because they have this really defective view of the relationship of, of revelation to reason. So uh, have there been Catholics in history that thought there was a young earth? Yeah, until the science showed otherwise. And then they said, no, not, not very young, pretty, pretty old. You yeah. know? Now, it's because, because things that you derive from science are derived from science rather than from revelation. Something like the age of the earth is not the kind of question where the, the pope is ever going to declare a dogma. He's not going to say God has revealed the earth has this age. Because he only does that when it comes to things that religion reveals. Okay. Uh, but what you'll find is the common opinion of theologians and of the popes, for that matter, is that, you know, you follow the science. And so if science says that we're 13.7 billion years old, then that's probably how old we are. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, Mike, is that helpful for you, sir? Oh, very good. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. You are most welcome. Our phone number here for Call to Communion on EWTN 833 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Paul's watching us on Facebook in uh, Lake District, and that's in the UK. Paul says, do we know if there are any Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon people or their spirits in heaven? Uh, we don't know that there are, and we don't know that there aren't. And we don't know that much about Neanderthals and Cro-Magnon. We don't know that much about other, uh, other human species that are now extinct. Uh, and I'm certainly no anthropologist, and I hesitate to open my mouth on the subject. My, my sense is, uh, from reading that I've done, that those, those races don't show the same level of intellectual sophistication that Homo sapien developed. Mm -hmm. Whether they achieved uh, rational, abstract thought or not is something that I, I don't know, and I, I don't think that anthropologists can infer. But the question of the immortality of the soul is tied to its immateriality, and the immateriality of the soul is an inference from its powers of abstract thought. Right. So, so if you have... The kind of brain and the kind of mind that can do abstract conceptual thinking, mm -hmm. then you have a case for an immaterial and therefore an immortal soul. Um, and so that would be that would be something that I don't think we'll ever know, but that would be kind of be the dividing line there. Pretty fascinating. Nothing in there about being able to select car insurance, correct? 
Um, no, 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 no. Okay. All right. Just wanted to make sure. Uh, Paul, thanks for watching us uh, in the UK. Appreciate hearing from you today. In a moment, we're going to get back to the phones. We will talk with Tara in Independence, Missouri. We have a couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you'd like to tell us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. We'd love to talk with you today if you've got a question about the Catholic faith. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV, your best way of contacting the show is via email, ctc at EWTN.com. Hey, congratulations going out to another longtime member of the EWTN family, Trinity Catholic Radio. That's in Carroll, Iowa. They are celebrating their 18th year with EWTN. Congratulations to Kelly Foley and the great team there at KYMJ 103.1 FM in Carroll, Iowa, from your friends here at EWTN. Back to the phones now for uh, Tara in Independence, Missouri, listening on the great Catholic radio network. Tara, what's on your mind today? Um, hi, Dr. Anders. My sister, who was raised Catholic, just announced that she is getting a divorce. Her husband, um, thinks, who was raised Catholic as well, thinks the Catholic Church is homophobic and outdated. Um, I'm worried about my nephew, who has not been to, uh, to Mass in a while and is just starting college. I was wondering if you could recommend some good literature on how not to abandon the ship. Um, how to... How to how to keep the faith. Um, yeah, for the nephew, specifically? Any of them, there's actually four children, four teenagers. Okay, thanks. Um, so, uh, Dr. Peter Kreft has a book written specifically for teenagers, for young people, and the title of the book is Escaping Me for the Moment. Maybe Charles can look it up. And it's something like, you know, answering questions about God. Mm. I can't, I, I'm going to miss the title, but he actually wrote it um, in an attempt to fill a need for, for like po- post-confirmation age kids. And it's, you know, philosophical questions about Christianity, um, but written at, at sort of that age level. And that that's, that's pretty good. Um, uh, with some of my children, not all of them, I had them read um, Edward Fezzer's book, The Last Superstition, which is a defense of essentially the doctrine that God exists and that, that objective morality exists against the claims of the new atheists. And it's pretty philosophical stuff, which is why it was appropriate for some kids and not others. Sure. Um, but, uh, but for, you know, college-bound kids, yeah, that'd be, a, that'd be a great book. Now, it's not specifically on how to keep the Catholic faith, but it will give them something to think about, um, you know, when they're confronted with many of the doctrines of, uh, of modern secularism. So those are two things that, that you might consider. All right, very good. And uh, that question is, ca- that book by Peter Kreeft is Because God is Real. That's the one. 16 questions, one answer. Again, the, the main title, Because God is Real by uh, uh, Peter Kreeft, and that's K-R-E-E-F-T. Hey, uh, Tara, thanks so much for your call today. Called Communion here on EWTN. Micah watching us today on YouTube. Micah says, many groups and individuals profess they know what is right and or true. What 
criteria should I use to discern who is right and who is true? Wow, what a fantastic question. Yeah. So, a lot of ways to answer this. Um, you know, f- f- uh, to begin with, the Catholic Church definitely recognizes that nature and reason um, are valuable and play a role in the way that we arrive at truth. Mm. And so sense knowledge, empirical knowledge, uh, is real knowledge, um, as well as uh, demonstrations that we can make from, from the laws of logic. So we don't in any way, we don't in any way discount um, that, that, that that is a, is a path as an access to truth. Uh, we also think that reality is intelligible, and so that means that concrete existing things have a determinate nature. I mean, there's a reason that dogs are dogs and not cats, right? And that we may not be able to understand everything about why a dog is a dog and a cat is a cat, but we can understand enough about dogs and cats to know the difference. You know, and to, you know, barring some exceptional outliers, we can pretty much tell when when, when I'm looking at one and not the other. Sure. Okay. Um, and I, I point this out because there is a pervasive tendency in the world today uh, to deny that dogs are dogs and cats are cats, to deny that things have natures, and to assert without evidence that names are just things that we place on objects, you know, in accordance with our own personal prejudices or perhaps our own uh, inclinations or desires, and that I have as much a right to call, you know, a dog um, a cat, you know, as I do to call a, you know, Toyota as an apple tree, and that if you trespass on my right to do that, then, you know, away with you. Um, that's not the Catholic way of looking at things, and it's not, um, ultimately, that, that way of looking at reality devolves into tribal warfare, because it leaves nothing objective in the world other than preference. And so it's just the, it's just the battle of wills, ultimately, is all that's left, right? So if you, if you believe that reality is intelligible, which Catholics do, and not only Catholics, but people of goodwill and most philosophers throughout the centuries, and anybody crossing the street, right, who looks both ways, <laughs> if you think that reality is intelligible and that we can have maybe not a perfect understanding of reality, but a grasp of reality that's sufficient to flourish in the world and to discern some goods for the human person, um, those are criteria, okay? Um, and that includes the flourishing of human nature, right? So um, I, can, I can discern some truths about my own reality, the reality of my being, um, and, uh, and here you have to be careful, right? Because people do have passions, and they are irrational. Um, they have all kinds of biases, um, and some of them seem to be baked into the way we, that we do think. We call it heuristic biases. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but distributive cognition, distributed cognition is a big help, right? So when, it, when, I, when, I, when I don't leave decision-making up to myself and my own preferences and my own, you know, in, interior subjectivity— but I take counsel, uh, and not just from people that think like me, and not just people from my set, but I avail myself of the wisdom of the ages, um, as well as science, um, then, uh, then I'm going to be pointing more in the right direction than otherwise. Okay. Um, now, obviously, as a Catholic, I'm, I'm not going to leave without mentioning uh, the Catholic faith and the person of Jesus as the ultimate criterion of truth. Right. And... Um, uh, what I find as a Catholic and what people have found for 2,000 years is that when you attempt to see the world through Christ's eyes and you are open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that it has an illuminating effect on the consciousness and upon the intellect. And it's why 
things like the scientific revolution, um, the doctrine of universal human rights, uh, modern institutions of benevolence, rational rules of, of civil procedure, judicial, judicial procedure, have flown from the bosom of the Catholic faith. Uh, it's the explicit teaching of the Catholic faith that Christ is the light of the world who gives light to every man, and that by opening yourself up to that light, you open yourself up to the depths of your own rationality. All right. And Micah, thanks so much for watching us on YouTube this afternoon. It's called Communion here on EWTN. Back to the phones right now. Here is Frank in Kansas City watching us on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Frank, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, I have a question. I have had a friend this weekend, uh, just a practicing Catholic, officiate a wedding for another religion. So I guess, you know, I don't know the specifics, but basically he, you know, was the official or married someone, a family member. How does that look down? Or is that good, bad, ugly? As Depends. Depends a lot uh, on a lot of the circumstances. So let's let's say, for example, I'm a Catholic. Let's say that, um, you know, one day I decide to step away from Catholic radio, and instead I go to law school and find myself working as a probate judge. All okay. right. And uh, and a non-Catholic couple comes to me. Maybe they're Hindus, and they say, "You know, we 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 don't have we we can't get back to India and do the Hindu wedding, so we've decided we're just going to have a civil wedding, and um, and we know we can do that. You know, with the justice of the peace. Here you are, Anders. You're a probate court judge. Could you marry us? I'm a Catholic. No objection to that at all. Nothing wrong with that at all. Catholic could officiate over that with with no problems. Okay." Um, let's say, however, that the couple that walks in the door is Catholic. They're not Hindus, they're Catholics. And they say, we'd like you to officiate our wedding. Well, in that case, if we're all Catholics, and I can say, well, can I take off my black robes and just talk to you as one Catholic to another? And they go, sure. I say, well, as a Catholic, you're not supposed to do it this way. You have an obligation to marry in the Catholic Church. And so, um, really, really, that's not kosher. You, you, can't, you can't do this. You can't just have a civil wedding if you're a Catholic. But if you're not a Catholic, there's nothing wrong with two Hindus getting married. And so there's no reason a Catholic couldn't participate in it under those conditions. All right. Uh, Frank, thanks so much uh, for your call. Call to Communion here on EWTN. I want to tell you about a new book now available from EWTN's religious catalog, and it's called New Friends, Now and Forever, a story about the holy souls by Susan Tatsoni. She is a best-selling, award-winning author. You may know her from uh, the Purgatory Lady segment on uh, Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio. She delivers the first children's picture book about our friends, the Holy Souls. New Friends, Now and Forever. It's the delightful story of twins Ben and Hope. They become prayer pals with Mr. Ray, an elderly friend from their parish who prays for his departed wife. Along the way, Hope and Ben learn that purgatory is real and that it's nothing to fear because it's a special way God shows his love for us. It's a fantastic book. New Friends, Now and Forever, a story about the holy souls. It's age-appropriate and an engaging book for kids ages 6 to 10. Check it out by going to EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. A moment ago, David, you mentioned the Hindu religion, and we got uh, a question here from Rave watching us on YouTube today. Rave says, Hello, how does Catholicism slash Christianity reckon with a singular incarnation when Hinduism recognizes avatars of the divine? Chat GPT, which is AI, thinks Jesus could be the final Vishnu avatar 
Calchas. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts. So first of all, I, I would like to distinguish Catholicism from Christianity more broadly. Catholicism oh. is a form of Christianity, yes. but, um, but you'll find that Catholics have very different answers to questions from many other Christians. So, you know, I wouldn't conflate the two necessarily. Right. Um, now, the, the Catholic position is that um, there can be a lot of truth, there is a lot of truth in Hinduism. Hindu scriptures say a lot of true things. Mm-hmm. Um, there are means of, uh, of sanctification you could find within Hinduism, that the grace of God can act in an unseen way outside the Catholic Church and bring people uh, more and more to be assimilated to his likeness and image. And, and so we would never look at anybody, whether they're Hindu or, or Buddhist or atheist or whoever, and say, well, I know for sure you're going to hell. We know no such thing. That's not how we roll. God, yeah. can, God offers his grace to everybody, sometimes in ways known only to himself. All right. That being said, the Catholic Church does not believe uh, in Hindu avatars. That is to say, we don't think that, you know, one of the 330 million Hindu gods has actually become incarnate in any historical person. Um, And in fact, it's, you know, if you look at, say, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the epic literature of classic Hinduism, when they write about uh, avatars, they're, they're always writing about some mythic time. Um, in illo tempore, as uh, as um, Monsieur Iliade put it, you know, once upon a time land. Uh, they're not they're not writing about uh, contemporary individuals that you can locate on a on a map or a timeline. <clears throat> so, a we don't believe they happened, but b nothing in Hinduism offers evidence that they happened either because okay. of the, the genre of literature. That's different when you come to the person of Jesus, um, because Jesus is an historical person who lived in a historical timeline, and we can we can put you know put a finger on the map and find out where he was, and um, and so the, the presence of Christ in history uh, as the incarnate God has a status just historically that a Hindu avatar doesn't. But more importantly, the, the Christian belief is that Christ is the 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 definitive revelation of God, and he's not you know, merely one in a series of avatars that, you know, fulfilled in some other kind of incarnation. And no, he is, he is the singular work of God's self-revelation, hinted at, perhaps, uh, by other traditions and by the prophets in other ages, but, uh, but manifest fully only in the person of Jesus. All right. Uh, Rafe, thanks so much for checking us out on YouTube today. It's called Communion on EWTN. Last call for your call at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-3986. Nancy's watching us on Facebook today. Nancy says, I was hoping today Dr. Anders could uh, hearken back to yesterday's last question regarding Revelations being a better answer to the prophecies from the Old Testament, and I'd add the question, how do Catholics read the book of Revelation compared to Protestants? Yes, let me go back to that question. So uh, we got a question on today's show about how the book of Ezekiel applies to contemporary events in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And I think what I said was it has as much to do with events in the Middle East as the heel of my shoe. It's not about events in the Middle East. When I referenced the book of Revelation, what I meant by that is when you read Revelation, it's fairly obvious that, uh, that John of Patmos knew the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel because the imagery that he uses seems to be drawn pretty, uh, pretty parasitically from, from those texts. But what John offers us when he uses this apocalyptic imagery of you know flying beasts and all kinds of weird uh, symbols is not a prediction of the historical end of the world at the end of time, but he seems to be describing spiritual realities 
manifest politically in his own day, right? And um, John saw the persecution of the Christian church in his own life uh, and uh, the suffering of Christians as a kind of... Um, uh, 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 he used he used the types of apocalyptic prophecy to describe those those tragic spiritual events. Okay. And so the way a Catholic would use that, in my judgment, today is we would say, yeah. So the church suffers, the righteous uh, perish, uh, the wicked triumph. Uh, you know, there's war and famine and disease in the world and all manner of of injustices. And books like Revelation show us not you know, a historical timeline that we can read off of the New York Times, um, but they, sh- they give us a spiritual picture of what the plight of the church is in, in, in the world and will be until the return of Christ. So they don't, they don't give us a map to, um, to say, well, you know, obviously this political figure is the Antichrist and, you know, Jesus is going to come back by, you know, 2030. No, we don't read it that way. We read it as a, as a picture of the perennial condition of, of Christians and the righteous in the face of persecution and injustice down through the centuries. Nancy, thank you so much for your question today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Rebecca on uh, listening on um, Ave Maria Radio, listening to their app in St. Petersburg Beach in Florida. Rebecca, what's on your mind today? Hello. So, Dr. Anders, I have a, a dear friend who is an ordained Methodist minister, a female friend, and um, she recently went to Mass with me, and she believes uh, in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ and Holy Communion, and she believes that she can um, say the prayers of consecration and uh, convey that. So, we got into a big discussion on why she could not do that, and she claims that uh, the Methodist, that ordained Methodist ministers are in apostolic succession, and I had never, ever heard anything like that. So I'm just trying to get your take on it. You know, I'm, I told her that, you know, she, if she believes in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist, um, she cannot remain Methodist by any means. Um, but anyway, just wanted to know what your advices or do you have any literature I could read or yeah thanks I appreciate the question so uh, Pope Leo the 13th was confronted with a question that had been confronted in the 16th century but it came up again in the 19th century um, and that was the question of the validity of Anglican orders do Anglican priests and by and by extension Methodist bishops uh, have apostolic succession, valid apostolic succession. And um, the Church has said no to that question in the 16th century, but there were some Anglican uh, historians that were arguing that the Church's reasoning in the 16th was faulty and that they really did have valid orders, and so that Leo Thirteenth looked into it again, and he published an encyclical on the question, and the title of the encyclical is Apostolicae Curi. So if you wanted reading material, that's, that's the text to read by okay. Pope Leo Thirteenth. And what he said was that Anglican orders are absolutely null and void. Wow. Absolutely null and void. So that no Anglican has valid apostolic succession through the Anglican Church. Now, that, that doesn't mean there's not some stray Anglican out there someplace that got ordained by a Catholic bishop, and that, that does happen. You may have a Catholic bishop who, who leaves and becomes Anglican. Mm. Uh, but barring that rare exception, um, Anglicans as such do not have valid apostolic succession. 
and, and the Church has always taken that position and repeated it definitively, and according to Joseph Ratzinger, when he was prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, he became Pope Benedict, that, 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 uh, that teaching must be held definitively as infallibly taught by the magisterium. So they do not have valid apostolic succession. And, and the reason that they don't is not because they split with Rome, because there are other communions that split with Rome that kept apostolic succession. It's because they vitiated their own uh, right of ordination, and they proposed a different doctrine of priesthood. And so, and so there was a default in the form and intent of the celebrant celebrating ordination. And that happened during the, the reign of King Edward, it was, it was written into the Edwardine Ordinal, the rite of ordination under the, uh, the King Edward's reign. Uh-huh. And up until that point, Anglicans did have apostolic succession. So, say, Henry VIII, he pulled the Anglican Church away from Rome, but he had validly ordained priests and bishops. They were in schism at that point, uh-huh. but they did have valid orders. And if he hadn't changed anything, they could have just been a church in schism. But then, when Henry, when, when Henry died and Edward came to the throne, he had Calvinist advisors... That, uh, that impressed upon him to change the right of ordination, and in doing so, they, they vitiated their own, their own orders. So, um, so no go, no go. Now, here's, here, there is a silver lining to this. Um, uh, f- well, if you're, I think you said your friend's a woman, right? Yes, so, ma- yes. Not, not for your woman, but mm. for, not for a woman, but for, but for a Methodist minister. The uh, uh, Catholic Church created a structure called the Anglican Ordinariate, that allows Anglican priests um, to be ordained as Catholic priests and to serve as ordained Catholic clergy, mm-hmm. even if they're married. And uh, they, that extends to Methodists. It extends to Methodists. Okay. But you can't be ordained a priest in the Catholic Church if you're female. Right. So, so if a Methodist minister could be, or even a married Methodist minister could convert to Catholicism and be ordained a Catholic priest. Unfortunately, well, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, um, a, a, a female minister could not. Rebecca, is that helpful for you? That is so helpful. I have one more question. Is there a place um, that I can find, like, the script of this show, like the postscript? Like a transcript? I've looked. Like a transcript, yeah. We do offer the podcast, which you can check out... <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, today's program will be podcast in about two hours. Takes a while to get up onto the web, but if you go to ewtn.com/radio and then click on the word podcasts, you will find uh, today's program. Thanks so much for your call today, Rebecca. Here's a quick one now from Teresa watching us on YouTube. Dr. Anders, is the Catholic Church against Stoicism? And while we're at it, what is Stoicism? Yeah, no, the Catholic Church is not against Stoicism. Okay. Uh, in fact, Stoicism. Now, I should say, there are specific Stoic doctrines that the Catholic Church is against. Mm-hmm. So, the, the Catholic Church teaches against fatalism and eternalism, uh, and there are Stoics who held to fatalism and eternalism. But Stoicism, as such, uh, no, is a great ally of Catholicism. Okay. And in fact, uh, much of early monastic theology um, in the Desert Fathers is an application of Stoicism to Christian spiritual practice. Um, in particular, the, the patristic doctrine of apatheia, um, which we would translate as dispassion, mm-hmm. uh, is, a, is, is, a, is a direct borrow 
from from Stoic doctrine and practice. Uh, St. Augustine, another church father who was deeply influenced by Stoicism. There's a, there's a magnificent literature on, um, on um, uh, the Stoic influence on, on Catholicism. On the doctrine of apatheia specifically, there's a book by a Jesuit theologian, uh, Nguyen. It's the, the Vietnamese, you know, Nguyen, N-G-U-Y-E-N. Yeah, I yeah. think mm-hmm. it's Joseph Nguyen. Uh, I think the title of the book is just Apatheia in Christian Tradition. I think that's, or Apatheia in the Christian, I think that's the title, but Apatheia is in the title. Um, great little book, highly recommend it. Um, so, no, we're not we're not opposed to Stoicism at all. And, and um, you know, I'm a, personally, I'm a big fan of Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and all, all the rest of them. And what is Stoicism? Oh, yeah. So Stoicism is a is a philosophical school that emerged in ancient Greece. And uh, I heard I heard one, actually John Verveke used this, uh, used this description. He said Stoicism is the religion that attempts to uh, internalize Socrates. So, you know, if you took not just Socrates' teaching, but his character and his disposition to the mm-hmm. world, like how can I be a philosophical, rational, grounded person who, you know, cares for my fellow man— um, Stoicism is a is a movement that that flowed out of that, distinct from Platonism, um, and uh, a big part of Stoicism is is the desire to live uh, at peace with one's passions, to live a rational form of life, not controlled by one's passions. Okay, so you're not bouncing around all the time. You're not bouncing around all the time, yeah. And you you know one of the techniques that Marcus Aurelius advocated was, uh, well, actually a lot of Catholic practice like um, like uh, memento mori, you know, the meditation on death, for yes, example, to yes. kind of put perspective on your day and what you're going to value, and what you're going to mm-hmm. live by. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, uh, Aurelius would consider the things that he would be attracted to naturally in the world and say, well, you know, well, what is this really? You know, what, is this, what does this really amount to at the end of the day? Is it something worth putting my life into? That kind of mm. critical reflection on our, on our desires and our passions. Kind of boiling it down to the essence? Yep. Okay, very good. Teresa, thanks so much for your question via YouTube. Dr. David Andrews, thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast Monday through Friday with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Uh, you can check out the podcast, as we mentioned earlier, EWTN.com slash radio to find that podcast, EWTN.com slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Thanks for joining us. See you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.